Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. It's so good to see every one of you. And those of you who are joining us today on TV or online, welcome. We honor your presence with us this morning as well. Um, like I did last week, uh, I changed the sermon that I was supposed to preach today. Um, Palm Sunday, I did a more traditional Palm Sunday service. I felt the Lord leading in that direction. And um, and I do so today as well. As we look to, and you can get a chance to turn there, but Luke 24 is where we will be today. And it's one of the resurrection stories, but not the typical resurrection story. Uh, it's one of my favorites. And it's the story of the two disciples or followers of Christ who were on their way back home on Sunday. They were discouraged, frustrated. They hadn't witnessed the resurrected Christ, but they had heard the tomb was empty. And yet they were walking back home, probably a seven-mile journey, discouraged. Have you ever felt discouraged? Have you ever felt frustrated, whether it's by the news, by your current situation, your circumstances? Have you ever felt so discouraged, in fact, you just wanted to throw your hands up and give up altogether? I mean, I have. And pastors aren't supposed to get discouraged because they're students of the Word. They study, they preach, they teach, they know this stuff, right? But they should never feel discouragement. But I get discouraged. I get discouraged about various different things. I get discouraged with myself when, you know, I know I'm not the greatest parent in the world, and my kids will tell you that. They, they, they could tell you things about me that would make me blush. And you're more than welcome to ask some questions because I don't stand up here claiming to be perfect, nor would I ever. The only reason I can stand here through discouraging moments is because of the sacrifice that Christ made on my behalf. In him, as we mentioned just a moment ago, in his blood, there is a covering of a multitude of sin. It's never a call so much to perfection as it is a call to holiness that we are called to as believers in Christ. And it's through that holiness being set apart for God that we receive any sense of hope that, the, that, that, that God has to offer us through his son, Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. You have false glimpses of hope. You might have moments of hope, but there is no eternal hope apart from Christ. And that's a message that I want to give to you today on this Resurrection Sunday. Without Christ, there is no lasting eternal hope. You can have hope that you can wake up tomorrow and go about your routines. You can have hope for your vacation that's coming up this summer or later this year. You can have hope in certain things that are fleeting, but there is no eternal hope apart from Christ. But even when you surrender your life to Christ, it doesn't mean that you won't be discouraged. 
You're going to be frustrated at times. You're going to be discouraged. Brandon, this is a celebratory day. I came today to hear an exciting message about joy and peace. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Why are you talking about discouragement? Because it's in our most discouraging moments that I believe the light can break through and Jesus can show us a glimpse of who he is when all hope seems lost. So let me explain to you this morning. I came across this illustration I thought was very good. Please understand, it's just an illustration. Don't get mad, all right? All right, there's a fictional story, obviously, that Satan decided to get rid of a number of his tools. So he, he planned kind of an estate sale or an auction to get rid of some of his wares because he was trying out some new things. And he's like, I don't need these old things anymore. There were things like envy, deceit, malice, sexual immorality, enmity, thoughtlessness, gossip, and so many other different types of tools that Satan had successfully used throughout the millennia, and he priced the price tags on them very low. I mean, the regular everyday person could buy these things if they wanted to. However, there was a piece marked very high. It had a really big price tag on it. The interesting thing is it was weathered and worn. You wouldn't spend so much on this. It was, it was really bedraggled. It was discouragement. And so a bidder came by and said, hey, tell me about this. Why is it marked so high and it's so worn out? Oh, Satan kind of chuckled, and he says, <laughs> that's, that's pretty easy. He said, all these other things I, I can use in certain situations, but this, when all else fails, I can use every time on any person, no matter what age or stage of life they're in. As a matter of fact, this discouragement has been used virtually on everybody on the face of the earth, past, present, and I'm sure in the future, unless you want to buy it. Well, nobody was able to offer <clears throat> the price for discouragement. And so Satan continues to use it to this day. And I'm sure he's used it on you, if not within the past week, the past month, the past year, the past decade. I'm sure you could relate. Jesus' disciples experienced great discouragement. The two on their way to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, they were heading back home. Passover was over. <clears throat> Jesus had made his triumphal entry the week prior to that. People were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Praise to the one who comes in the name of King David. And quickly the week would turn ugly. Those disciples that had been shouting that, believers along the roadways into Jerusalem had been shouting these praises to Jesus because he was the king who was to establish this kingdom that will last forever. The prophets had said so. But he had been arrested. You see, after they celebrated the Passover, they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just outside the city gates of Jerusalem, up on the hillside. Gethsemane means olive press. And so they're in an olive grove, and they're in this place where the olive press is. And, and Jesus says, let's pray. 
Let's pray through the night. You know, it's interesting, in order to get to Gethsemane, they had to pass the Kidron Valley, which there's a small stream that runs down through there. And it stated that during Passover, especially during the day of Jesus, that there would be so many lambs sacrificed, some consider possibly 150,000 lambs or more, that the Kidron Valley and the creek that ran down through there would run red with blood of the Passover sacrifices from the Temple Mount. Now imagine Jesus is going out that night And he crosses with his disciples the Kidron Valley after the sacrifices have been made. And they cross this bloody stream. And he says, I want you to pray with me. And so he calls his disciples to go pray. Peter, James, John, they go a little bit further with them. They all fall asleep. Later that evening, probably about three in the morning, some suggest, the temple guard come. Judas says, told them where Jesus would be. And Judas comes with the temple guard and he betrays Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. And Jesus looks at him, seriously? You're going to betray the Son of God with a kiss on the cheek? Is this, how, is this really how this is going to work? And so Jesus, without giving a fight, goes with the temple guard. He stands that evening before the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court, if you will, of the Jewish Uh, temple and the Jewish people, they've got trumped up charges against Jesus. And they're wanting him to really out himself. And they're calling him all different sorts of things. And without denying it, they call out charges against him. And they realize, you know, we can't crucify him ourselves. The Romans are the ones who govern us, and only they can put somebody to death. And so, based on their charges, they go to Pilate. And Pilate's not going to play these stupid games with the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders. And he's like, send them to Herod. It's his jurisdiction anyway. And so, they send him to Herod. And Herod says, show me a miracle, because he's a goofy sort. Seriously, look it up. And Jesus wouldn't perform miracles with him, so he gets frustrated. Just send him back to Pilate. And he goes back to Pilate, and Pilate's like, oh, goodness gracious, do I really have to deal with this? But by now, the religious leaders had really started to stoke the population of the people that were there for that week of Passover. Jesus isn't who he says he is. We need to have him crucified. Hey, Jesus is this this rebel rouser. He wants to go ahead and just tear everything apart. He wants to make your life a living hell. He's not really the king of kings. He's not who he says he is. We should crucify him. And so they start to disseminate this false message so that when Jesus is back and Pilate now has him and Pilate's questioning him, Jesus remains silent, except for a few short words. And Pilate can see nothing wrong in Jesus to actually put him to death. I mean, there's really, there's no real reason. There's no death sentence here. And so Pilate says, "Uh, I see nothing wrong with him. So here's what I'm going to do. It's it's my custom uh, to release a prisoner to you. For Passover, I give you Barabbas or Jesus. Now, Jesus has been punished by this point, beaten, bruised, whipped, a bloody mess. 
and Barabbas. Barabbas was what you would consider to be a terrorist of his day. He was a Jewish zealot. And Jewish zealots would go in, their zealots would carry daggers up their sleeve. And they would weasel their way into crowds and groups and they would stab Roman officials and guards and different things and they would scurry off. They tried rebellions and uprisings over the years. Barabbas, a murderer, and Jesus, the Son of God. And lest we think we would choose any differently, it's amazing how quickly groups can change when people start yelling certain things. It's called groupthink, but it doesn't happen today, just in Jesus' day. When the whole group is going one direction, and you're like, I don't know about this, right? You ever been in a situation like that? But you're like, if I stand, they're going to be against me, so I'll just pretend <laughs> and I'll remain silent. And so they all start yelling, crucify him. And the loudest voices are the ones who really want him crucified. Give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so Pilate, I believe, was like, oh. I mean, Barabbas should be the one I need to crucify. But if I don't do what this whole mob is requesting of me, there may be an uprising, and then I'll have Caesar in Rome to deal with, and he'll have my head if there's an uprising and rebellion in Jerusalem. And I just don't want that on my conscience, so here's what I'm going to do. I'll release Barabbas, but, and, and I'll have Jesus crucified, but I want the whole group to know that his blood is not on my hands. And so he takes a basin that is full of water publicly before the crowd, out on his portico of his palace. After Barabbas has been released, he says, I want you guys to know, I'm having him crucified, but it's on you, not on me. So Jesus is led away. He walks nearly a mile to a place called the Skull or Golgotha. It's a place you can go today, and it actually, if you look on this hillside just outside of the gates of Jerusalem, it looks like the face of a skull. It's just a natural thing in the edifice of the cliffside there, which is why they called it the skull. And they take him to that place, which is basically next to the trash heap or garbage dump of Jerusalem, and they crucify him along with two other criminals on either side of Jesus. That was Good Friday. Then Saturday came. All was quiet. The Jesus followers had remained in Jerusalem because it was the Sabbath. They weren't to walk or go anywhere, and so it was quiet. I can imagine what it must have been like to be a fly on the wall of the upper room where they had celebrated the Passover with Jesus, where he had washed their feet, where they had experienced God in the flesh who was now dead. I'm sure it was quiet, but occasionally I bet there was a conversation. I, I can't believe it. I mean, he, we, we saw him do mirror. We saw him touch the eyes of the blind, right? Did we, we did see that, right? We, we saw him raise a man from the dead who had been in the tomb for four days.
We saw him multiply fish and loaves. I mean, a boy's lunch to feed thousands and thousands of people. Saturday, they're contemplative. They're processing. They're, they're reeling from a myriad of emotions, but just an utter discouragement. And then Sunday morning comes along and they're able to get up and move around. The Sabbath is over. They can go about their business and routines. And some of the disciples linger in Jerusalem and they're still, I think, in shock. But some start to head back home. And there's a report that comes. There's some women followers of Jesus that had been with him for the years that he had been ministering and gathering disciples. Mary, Mary of Salome, Mary Clopas's wife, or yeah, Mary Clopas's wife. And she, they come back with a report. The stone that sealed the entrance of the tomb has been moved. And we looked inside, and it's empty. And as quickly as we looked inside, we noticed it was empty. There were these two gleaming, bright, lightning-type figures that stood before us, and they asked us, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen just like he told you. Some of the disciples had heard that report, but they didn't see it with their own eyes. Some of the disciples, Peter and John, ran to the tomb to verify, is it true? But not all the disciples ran to the tomb. And two of those disciples were headed back home. And I want to read their story for you this morning. Luke 24, starting with verse 13. That same day, Sunday morning, the day of the resurrection, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. Again, processing, just did, did we really experience that? Can you believe what had happened? I mean, we thought he was the one, right? And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. Now, this probably wasn't an empty road. There's probably a lot of thoroughfare, people heading back home, and it had been the Passover, and now everybody's headed back to their places of business and, and, and leisure and work, or work and all of that kind of stuff, heading back home to get ready for a new work week. So Jesus suddenly appears, but my guess is he had been mingling through the crowds, and then he starts to walk along with them. Overhearing their discussion, he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Well, they stopped short, sadness written across their faces, and then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here or there the past few days, the last few days. Seriously? Did you not see the crucifixion during Passover? I mean, it's not a common fare 
during our time of greatest worship. Seriously, you missed all of this. Where, were you under a rock? What things, Jesus asks, as he would normally do before? Do tell. What you talking about? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. Do you see how their verbiage changed? See, they'd come to know him as the son of God before the crucifixion, before his burial. But now they've deduced, based on what they've experienced, not remembering what Jesus had already told them was going to happen, happen. They deduce now that he was, he was a great prophet. He did many, many miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders, they, they, they handed him over to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. I mean, this, this all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group, the followers of his followers, you see, they were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they'd seen angels who told them Jesus was alive. He said, some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? He's referring to Isaiah 53. Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The seven-mile walk to Emmaus from Jerusalem, Jesus is unpacking from Moses in the very early books of the Bible, all the way through the prophets, he is telling them the whole Old Testament. And he's putting all of the pieces together for them. And their eyes still aren't open yet. They're listening. They're hearing these familiar stories they'd grown up with in the teachings of the synagogues and their religious leaders. They knew the stories he was telling them, but they were still not assured. It says, by this time, after having gone through all the lists of the Old Testament stories, they were nearing Emmaus at the end of their journey. And I love this because this isn't the first time he's done this. Jesus acted as if he were going on. You see, Jesus is a gentleman. He will not stay where he is not welcomed. He doesn't assume they want him to stick around. He doesn't say, hey, where are you guys going? Can I go with you? Jesus will not go where he is not welcomed. 
And if they hadn't welcomed him, he would have gone on. Jesus, if you remember back in the stories of the Gospels, uh, told the disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee to uh, the, the region on the other side of the lake. And he said, I'll meet you over there. I'm going to go pray and be alone with the Father. And later on that evening, said there was a storm that came up. The disciples were still on the Sea of Galilee. And there's this ghostly figure walking on the water. And they all freak out. And they say, oh, a ghost. I'm sure it happened just like that. Because I would have done that. Y'all, a ghost. Um, and so Jesus is walking on the water. And it says in one of the instances of the gospel's recollection to this is that he was intending to pass by them. He was expecting, he said, I told you guys to go on over. I'll meet you over there one way or another. But they call out to him. And he reassures them it's him. And Peter's like, well, if it's really you, call me to come out to you and meet you on the water. He said, well, come on. He does. He says it just like that. And Peter jumps out of the boat, and he begins walking on the water. And he's like, whoa. Until he gets his eyes off Jesus and starts looking, because the storm hasn't stopped yet. The waves are crashing. The wind is blowing. And he begins to sink. Jesus acted as if he was going to go on, but, he, but they begged him to stay. Stay the night with us since it's so late. So he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread of the evening meal. <laughs> I love this. And he blessed it. And then he broke it and gave it to them. And what happens? Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, just as he had quickly appeared, he disappeared. <laughs> you can't make this stuff. This is cool stuff. The upper room, the last supper, the Passover, take and eat, this is my body. Jesus breaks the bread at their home in Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. He blesses it and gives it to them. And they're like, oh, oh that, that's it. <laughs> we see. And then he disappears. Wait, wait, I want to ask more questions. Listen to what happens. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us along the road and explained the scriptures to us? I mean, how could we be so blind? I mean, when he was telling us the stories, whew, there was an excitement. Yes, he did say that. Yes, and, and they're putting these pieces together, but they're still not seeing the clear picture. Okay, yeah, he did say that. Yeah, this does make sense. He said he would die, but that he would come back. That's right. The prophets said that. They said he would have to suffer. Yeah, yeah, and they're starting to get it. They're starting to get it, but they don't get it until Jesus breaks the bread. And there he was in their presence the whole time. And all they were doing is setting a discouragement. There he was with them the whole time. And all they were doing was complaining. Because their expectations weren't met by God. 
How do you feel when your expectations aren't met? How do you feel when you set the bar for God rather than the other way around? God, you should perform this way. You should do this thing. You should live this way. You should act this way because it fits within my paradigm and within my box. And God says, I don't live in your box. I am that I am. I am good, I am perfect, I am holy, I am righteous, and I cannot be anything other than that. And when I don't live up to your expectations of me, it's not because I don't love you. It's because you don't understand what I'm trying to do. And if you could see what I see and know what I know, then it would make all sense. But you can't right now, which is why you need faith. And in the midst of your discouraging moments, don't give up on me because I haven't given up on you. You see, we could be discouraged if Jesus' body was still in the tomb. But today, today of all days, we remember and recognize that the one who was buried is now alive. That he truly has risen from the grave and given us his Holy Spirit who is here in the midst of us today. And he desires that we live for him completely and fully, 100%. Though we may not know every answer to every question, he has the keys of knowledge and understanding that go beyond anything we could ever get at a university or in a schoolroom. And so if we lean into him as he has leaned into us and given us his whole self, we can truly find life everlasting. Let me quickly say this, because I know you got dinners in the crock pot and all that stuff. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus should burn in the heart of every believer. If you lose everything I've said today, the truth of the resurrection should burn in you. If you are a believer in Christ, that should be the main thing that highlights your hope. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a risen Savior who lives and breathes and sits at the right hand of the Father advocating for you and me. The God who poured out his wrath upon Jesus while he was on the cross. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he took the full weight of judgment that was reserved for you and me so that we wouldn't have to. He now sits at the right hand of the Father reminding Hey, Father, remember this, this, the nail prints in my hands? I love them. You love them. I know you do. Remember, you poured that judgment out on me. So, so let me work through this. Let's let the power of the Holy Spirit work and move and do his work. You see, discouragement is a friend of disbelief. When you are discouraged, it leads to disbelief. Always. Discouragement leads to doubt, leads to frustration, 
And if you continue to feed the beast, which is discouragement, which leads to disbelief, then it can lead to some very ugly things in your life. I quote this often, but Jesus, whenever he was on the earth living, doing his ministry, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. Do you know what it says in the Gospels? That when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, it says he could do no miracles there. Why? Because of their disbelief. I thought God could do anything. He could do no miracles because of their disbelief. I wonder why we don't see miracles in great supply these days. Could it be due to a lack of belief? We, 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 become, we have been educated into imbecility in our culture. Let me say that one more time. We have been educated, I'm not, don't, I, I'm not knocking education. I'm a firm believer in education. I have a master's degree, would love to get my doctorate, it's just too expensive. But we have been educated in our, in our universities, in our systems, in our institutions, we've educated our people into imbecility because we've not taught them how to think critically, how to know, to, how to find the truth, how to pull back what's false and see what's real. Everything is now relative. Everything is loose and fluid, so much so that we don't know the truth when it's staring us in the face. And like Cleopas and the other cohort who was walking back to Emmaus, and Jesus was right there, the way, the truth, and the life, but they were blinded to the reality of the truth right in their presence. We, too, struggle with this. Discouragement leads to believe. Discouragement is a friend to believe. And disbelief, uh, disbelief. And disbelief is the enemy of truth. Why do you think Jesus got so mad at them? He says, you foolish people. I thought we weren't allowed to call people fools. Isn't that one of the things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't call somebody a fool. Well, that's not the right context because in this context, when you take that Greek word where it says you foolish people, it means Lack of understanding. It's, it's like saying, why are you so ignorant? Okay, what is ignorance? A lack of understanding. It, you can call somebody ignorant in a derogatory way, but the true definition of ignorance is, I really don't know what you're telling me. Okay? If you want to know exactly down to brass tacks what that word means. Disbelief leads to a rejection of the truth. Disbelief is an enemy of the truth. They had so been discouraged and so not believed, they couldn't see Jesus with them, and so they became an enemy of the truth that Jesus had to say to them, why are you so dumb? I mean, you've grown up with these stories from Moses to the prophets. Uh, didn't you learn anything? They had been educated into imbecility because it was just information and not transformation. You can learn something to pass a test, but you learn for transformation's sake so that you become different and better than you were before. And I know people that go to the scripture all the time and they're like, Brandon, I just don't get it. And you're right, there are some passages and places in scripture that are extremely hard to understand. Even for me, which is why I then, instead of saying, well, I don't understand it, and I walk away from it, I say, 
I want to understand it, so let me dig and let me understand. Let me know. And so I look to other sources and resources and scholars. I'll, I'll, I'll get books that actually are from scholars of the history of that time period to know maybe there's something going on culturally that I don't understand there that maybe is reflected in Scripture. So I dig and I dig and I dig instead of throwing my hands up saying, well, I just don't get it, so I guess there's no reason to even read it. But here's the final thing. Truth brings sight to the blind. Truth brings sight to the blind. Energized by what they had experienced on the road back to Emmaus with the risen Christ, Fred Craddock, a a biblical scholar, writes this. The need for sleep was forgotten as they got up and returned to Jerusalem all at once to share their newfound joy. They'd spent all day, or from the time they got up, traveling seven miles back home. They weren't hurrying up to get back home. It says they were just so sad and discouraged. And when you're sad and discouraged, you don't usually walk at a very steady, upbeat pace. When you're sad and discouraged, you walk slower head down. It took them all day to get back. But now, after dinner, after Jesus had broken the bread, their hunger was gone. They had had the bread of life in their very presence. They dropped everything they had done and were doing at the moment, and they hightailed it back to Jerusalem. And they had a a giddy-up in their step to get back. And when they got back, they're like, guys, you, you won't believe what we experienced. And some of the disciples are like, yeah, welcome to the party. We've seen and done it. You just, you just didn't believe. You walked on home discouraged. You should have stuck around here. We saw Jesus. He actually, <laughs> he, he sat at our table. And, and he, he broke bread. And, and it was that moment. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, how could we not see it? That was him. So we had to come back and tell you guys. See, that's the thing. When good news is revealed to us, there's a stirring in our hearts. I gotta share this with somebody. I gotta call somebody. I gotta I, I gotta go somewhere and do something. But all too often, misery loves company. Instead of sharing good news, we oftentimes like, oh, did you? Hear about my aches and my pains. My goiter's hurting again. I don't even know what a goiter is. I just remember living in Kentucky and my grandma would talk about her goiter. So, (laughs) my lumbago. Don't even know. Sounds like an Italian dish of pasta or something. But the reality is that's what we do. We like to spread discouragement. Misery loves company. But we have so much reason for good news. We have so much reason for good news. Truth truly brings sight to the blind. Listen to this. Consider the words of the prophet Isaiah who writes in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings the good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news about the God of Israel reigns. And the words of Paul who echoed Isaiah in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him 
to save them unless they believe in him. And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures state, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. It's not just for those of us who stand on a stage and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for anyone who has received Christ, the good news, then are messengers of good news to go into all the world. Consider the words of Jesus in John's gospel. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will. Do you believe that? Those who refuse to see the truth will remain blind, but those who know the truth, who is Jesus? will not only see, but will be set free. I want to call our worship team forward this morning to close this out. It's been a long service. I appreciate your patience. But I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to respond. All right, Brandon, you've preached about discouragement. You've preached about hope and joy and that there's no hope, true hope without Christ. And what do I do with all of that? There's a guy, a a Russian dissident uh, and former communist who became a famous author and really a resistant of the communist regime in Stalin's Russia by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In the mid-20th century, he was a prisoner, uh, political prisoner in a Soviet prison in Siberia from 1945 to 1953. He became so weak and discouraged while he was there There was a moment of just, I I can't do this anymore. I can't. He was so weak and discouraged that he wished he could die. The guards would beat and usually kill anyone that stopped working. And so one day, Alexander thought, I'm weak, I'm discouraged, I have no will to continue to live, so I'm just going to stop working, and I know they will beat me, and I'll probably die. I just want this over. As soon as he stopped working, however, another Christian drew a cross where Alexander could see it. He said that he was so encouraged by remembering that God gives hope Encouraged that he decided to continue working because of a Christian who cared too much to let him give up. You see, Jesus cared too much to let those two disciples who were on their way back home discouraged. He was cared too much about them to let them give up on him. He knew they should have known better, just as much as he knows we should know better in many circumstances and situations. But he hasn't given up on us. Why would we ever give up on him? Like Solzhenitsyn, we too can become discouraged, so discouraged, in fact, that we want to die. But thanks be to God, we have a risen Savior who took our shame and discouragement and nailed it to the cross so that we could have hope and courage to press on in this life, no matter your circumstances. For Christ's sake and for his glory, we are more than conquerors through him who saved us. So if you're discouraged today, 
If you've lost all hope, don't give up. Remember the road ahead may be hard, but what awaits us at the end is a reward beyond our wildest imaginations. Jesus took our shame, our sorrow, our discouragement on the cross so that we could be set free from those things. And today we live in the light of the cross and most importantly, the empty tomb with the promise of everlasting life to Christ Jesus our Lord. I mentioned earlier before communion that the way to be saved is to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was God's Son and to confess with your mouth. That's all it takes. But again, I remind you, it doesn't end there. That's not the end. That's not the finish line. That's just the starting line for a believer in Christ. When you become a child of God, it is the beginning of a race that I promise you, you will win. Because God promised us, because he ran ahead of us and won the prize for our salvation. If we just stay in the race, we too get an award, the reward of eternal life. If you're here today, maybe it's your first time, maybe it's only a handful of times, maybe you're here because you're exploring this thing called Christianity, you're not really sure what it's all about. I, I don't know why you're here. Maybe it's just out of ceremony and routine. Maybe it's just because it's Easter. I don't say this because we want a packed house. I say this because we want a packed kingdom. It's not God's will that anyone perish, but that all receive eternal life. And there is only one way to the Father, and that's the Christ Jesus. So I'm asking, and, and I'm, not, I'm not beyond begging, <laughs> to surrender your life to Christ today. Your discouragements, your frustrations, all the baggage you've carried into this place, the Lord can deal with what you carry if you're willing to take up his cross, your cross, and follow him. I'm going to lead in a prayer, but I'm also going to open up our altars. To my right, you can come and pray on the steps on this altar here. And you can say, Lord, <clears throat> I love you, but I just don't know how to do this. Or maybe you say, Lord, I'm dealing with discouragement. I love you, but I don't know how to deal with my discouragement and my frustration. If you come to my right, your left, somebody will pray with you. If you come to my left, your right, nobody's going to bother you. You can have some alone time with the Lord here. Okay? But if you need somebody to pray with you, all of our pastors on staff, our elders that are on, uh, on, our, on our board, um, and our prayer warriors, somebody will be willing to pray with you. You won't be there too long without somebody coming to you. But if you just want to be alone, come to my left. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can pray it out loud or you can pray it in your hearts. But I do ask that you'd pray it. And don't pray it for me, pray it for yourself. It's a prayer of salvation. Could be a prayer of recommitment to you. Maybe you've fallen away and left in your discouragement and the Lord's saying, I want you back. Come back to Jerusalem. Leave Emmaus. Let's pray. Father, forgive me a sinner. Give me hope and joy because I don't have it in great supply. 
Lord, I know I've doubted at times. I know I've rejected your truth. Forgive me. Receive me with open arms like a prodigal. Forgive me where I failed you, where I failed myself, and where I failed others. Thank you for new life in Christ Jesus. Adopt me as your son or daughter today. I surrender all to you. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.